You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I signal. Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason. And no man today, guys, she has a really good reason today. Um, her car is out in the front of our house, um, kind of crying a little bit and whining because um, she left church this morning. A young kid decided to um, see if he could just ignore the fact that there was a great big Suburban in front of him. And as it turns out, that doesn't work out very well for a smaller car. So um, she's out dealing with that stuff right now. So today, you've just got me again on the upside, um, I brought a guest. Surprise, surprise. So <laughs> today we have Eileen Divine with us from EileenDivine.com. I'm going to screw up names again. I'm good at this. For some reason, I'm getting a roll you of You got my, it. Perfect. It was perfect. I, didn't. I don't know why. <laughs> Eileen, I, I'm in this dad's group that I talk about all the time on this on this podcast. Um, and inside of that group is a buddy of mine, Mark. And Mark is a good dude. And he has another kid that I've talked with him about his, about his child a lot because he's got some significant you know struggles in his life. And so me and Mark have talked a lot. And he said, hey, you've got to meet this gal, Eileen Devine. Um, I, I'm part of her group as well. And and man, she's got some great things. She has a podcast that she does and some meetups and stuff. And, and I think you really need to, to talk to her. And he sent me a couple of the blog posts from your website. And I said, yep, I'm going to go look at that. And I looked at it and I said, oh, look, I see that the community, she has a resilience room. I want to look at this. And it said, oh, the resilience room is closed. And I went, oh, well, that stinks. <laughs> and, uh, and I think like a week later, after I had seen it and put my email address in that to be notified if it opens up anytime. And it said, Oh yeah, the resilience room is open. I said, I'm going to go find out about this. So I am here to talk with you about the resilience room and your connection with kids with, with struggles of what we like to call non-neurotypical behavior, because we okay. all think that we're the normal typical ones. I'm neurotypical. And if I am, you all are screwed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna say I don't. I don't. If if I'm normal, um, I don't know what the rest of you guys are. You're probably in a lot better shape than I am. But but yeah. So so I know that you're you're not like specifically a foster care provider, right? No, I'm not. I'm a social worker, and I have a private practice where I work with a lot of foster care parents and caregivers. Um, a lot of adoptive parents. And I am the adoptive parent myself of a child. She's, she's a teenager now. She would kill me if she heard me call her a child. <laughs> uh, we live 13. in the same threat world. <laughs> yes. I'm a teenager now, mom. Um, she is 13 and she has a diagnosis of FASD. And so I, you know, I was a social worker long before I was the mom um, but when we adopted her, she came into our life very quickly, a bit unexpectedly, very suddenly. And um, as she got a little bit older 
And I had sort of a side-by-side comparison in terms of development because we have a son who is what society would consider neurotypical. He's only 15 months older than her. Also, he's and like me. He's yeah, not. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to talk about how society sees you, but. <laughs> But yes, that's why I say what society considers, because it is such a spectrum, right? We're all somewhere different. Um, I didn't realize that at the time. I had a very narrow view of what neurotypical was. Um, And she fell outside of that. We realized that very, very early on. And so that led us on this search to figure out what exactly was happening with her. The diagnosis was um, helpful in many ways. I mean, that's always helpful for various reasons, but it didn't do a whole lot to help me and my husband, Dave, figure out how to parent her. We were doing what we did with our neurotypical son, and that was working beautifully with him. It was not working with her. And in fact, it was making things worse. And when I say things, I mean um, her challenging behaviors, which you know now I see as symptoms of something else at the time. I didn't see that. So anyways, the long story short, I decided, you know, once I had the answers that I was looking for, but that I didn't even know I was missing, I thought, somebody needs to be sharing this with families, like their tenderhearted, sweet, sensitive child who is super, super challenging. Like there's things that they can actually do to support that child. Most parents I work with are left feeling like nothing works. There's nothing that works for my child. They are doing this to me on purpose, purpose. it's willful, it's defiance. Um, And so they just kind of keep reaching for their power more and more and more that it makes things worse. Um, so I thought, you know, I'm going to kind of shift gears here and work with parents, be support for them, help them understand the way their child's brain works and that it works so differently. How do we parent differently in light of that? So that's my history, very, very brief history. <laughs> I totally understand what you're saying because almost 15 years ago when my wife and I decided we wanted to become foster parents, our very first uh, placement was, was Mm -hmm. a a brother and sister sibling group. And, Mm -hmm. um, and they came to our home after some significant trauma. Um, Mm -hmm. they had watched their father murdered in a drug deal gone bad. And, and there was a lot of other stuff that would be significant trauma anyways, but that was, that was kind of the, the big scoop of, of ice cream in the bowl, you know, plenty of cherries on top and sprinkles and all that to add to it. But, Mm -hmm. but you know, we came to it with the wisdom of, of any parent that, you know, I mean, at that point, I think our boys, our older boys that, um, came to us biologically were, uh, they were probably, 10, 11, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. not quite that old, close, uh, 15 years. I had to do the math here. That meant CJ would have been about nine years old. So they were probably mm-hmm. seven and nine years old. And we knew how to be parents, mm-hmm. right? They were, you know, two mm-hmm. and three years old. And we knew how to be parents. And these kids just need love. And, and we'll provide that. And everything's going to be okay, right? Mm-hmm. No. which you probably found out really quickly right i mean wouldn't it be wonderful if that's all it took but that love and that dedication and that um you know determination to figure it out that's where a lot of the parents that i work with um have like huge amounts of that to give and so they're incredibly frustrated sometimes feeling a bit hopeless and helpless but they still have that you know love and determination and so when we work on shifting our lens, which is a really hard ongoing, doesn't happen overnight process to, okay, this isn't about willful intentional behavior. Their brain has been changed, whether it's because of trauma, 
prenatal alcohol exposure, illnesses, you know, some traumatic brain injury of some kind, the behaviors all look very, very similar. The parenting them differently then can take on a similar, a similar stance. Um, but it's a diff- it's a, it's a tough learning curve for a lot of people at first, understandably. You know, I came from a family where my dad was a police officer and mm-hmm. I don't know how much you know about police officers, but police officers and criminals really are just, they walk the razor's edge and depends on which side they fall. That's been my mm-hmm. experience. Nothing to disparage all cops or anything, but you know, my dad was, I actually recently met some people in our little town here who, who knew my dad, uh, back when he was in high school. And I said, mm-hmm. I said, Oh, you, you graduated what in 73? I said, do you remember in 1972 when somebody got on the top of the water tower and in great big letters <laughs> painting class of 72, I know who that was. <laughs> and he became a cop of all things. Right. But, you know, so he was military. He was a police officer when when I was born. He'd already been through the military. So now we're we're talking to a guy who's had plenty of structure and discipline in his life. And I grew up with that. And he was raised by a single mom primarily. Um, He had a few his his biological dad died when he was like seven. There are a few Mm -hmm. male role models in his life. And notice I didn't mention healthy male role models because he had stories Mm -hmm. of things like having a fork stuck in his head at one point and stuff. So he he had his own level of significant difficulties growing up, was raised by one of the uh, a hard old school German woman. I mean, I'm going to tell you, my grandma was the type that if if you messed up, you're going to get a hand that's almost the size of mine. And that's not small upside your head. And you're going to wake up next week and go, I'm first words. I'm sorry, grandma. Right. Like that's the world he came from. And so I was parented very similarly. My parents like you, you, it's a two, you know, I see parents counting to kids and I'm like, Oh, we had a two count step in, in, in my house. My dad said it. That was count one. Count two was mm-hmm. you picked yourself up saying, ouch, when you didn't do it yes. and don't run away because if you, if you make him miss and then run away, it's going to be bad when he catches you. Right. He was, you know, my mm-hmm. mom knew how to swing a switch and that was yeah. the world that, that we were raised in. And I assumed that was the right way to raise kids because that's how I grew up. And so trying yeah. to figure out how to do that with, with some love and kindness because, you know, we all grow up and see the way our parents raised us. And we go, oh, there's some flaws there. They did wrong. And I'm going to do it better. And I'm going to be the perfect parent. And trust mm-hmm. me, you're not. Your right. older your oh, children will tell you. I have 20-something-year-old yeah. kids. And they have told me. <laughs> <laughs> They've given you some feedback. <laughs> I have had plenty of feedback to know I screwed stuff up still, but you know, so, so when we got, when we got these kids coming in with severe trauma in their life and let's be honest, foster care is one of those things where you have kids who come in with a bag of stuff that you don't necessarily know what all the, what all you're getting. Social worker might tell you these kids have been through this and that and they'll give you what they have and they don't know all the details of this kid's life. They just know what's come out so far. Yep. That's right. And that even if they did know the full extent of, for example, the trauma that that child had endured, it's going to impact that child's neurobiology differently than the sibling who witnessed who experienced the same thing. That's just how our brains and our bodies are unique. They're both going to be impacted by that from that neurobiological standpoint. But that's, that's where, especially parents who have multiple children in the home who are neurodiverse in that way, understanding how one child's brain works differently and also um, uh, in similar ways and in different ways than their sibling is part of that learning curve. So that's 
in my mind, what I learned really quickly working with parents and really from my own experience too, trying to shift my lens and how I see my daughter is that's actually the easy part, understanding how the brain can be changed in function and structure, what our brain does for us every day, how those things, those brain tasks, cognitive skills, whatever you want to call them are lagging behind, do not come easily as we expect them to for people who have had brain changes for whatever reason. That's kind of the easy part of the learning curve because it's outside of ourselves. It's very concrete. Um, It's about our kids, right? The other half of that, the other side of the coin is the way I talk about it is um, what you've mentioned about the way we were raised. We don't come into parenthood as blank slates, having our deeply held beliefs and values. And when we have a child whose behavioral symptoms are not good, right, or appropriate by societal standards, by our standards, they are going to clash with our deeply held beliefs and values. There's just no way around it. That's just us being human. So that is the piece the parents figure out like, oh, okay, I know the thing. Why can't I do it? Oh, it's because I have to do my own work now to settle into this, to get a hold of my reactivity, to focus on relationship rather than, you know, bringing out my hammer, my power, my control, and just bam, trying to whack that behavior away. We're taking a completely different approach to it. And that is, that is the hard work that these parents are like, okay, now I get it. (laughs) Now I see why this doesn't happen overnight, right? That it's a marathon, not a sprint. Absolutely. You know, because Amanda came from a totally different world. She grew up in a drug house. And so you can only imagine the sorts of trauma and stuff that she endured as a, as a child, mm-hmm. having a parent who was constantly either high, um, chasing drugs, selling, dealing, whatever, um, or in a place of, of some abandonment for a good long while, you know, yeah, she was just kind of sent off other places from time to time. Um, at a very young age, she was kidnapped, um, as, as an infant, she was kidnapped by her by her biological father and then spent some time on the lamb. You know, she was a fugitive at less than one year old for a little while. And, you know, she, she had all that. And, you know, so I've got my stuff, you know, that, that hammer, that, that iron fist is the world. I came, what I came into it with, and she came into it with a whole different set of presupposed things. And so then as a couple, we walk into it with completely different worldviews and we're trying to figure out how we can, we can stand beside each other and parent together from mm-hmm. completely different backgrounds in the middle of some stuff that got really crazy for a while. You know, we've, we've had yeah. reactive attachment disorder come through our house. And, you know, if you know anything about that one, that one can get yep. a little crazy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And working with, you know, I say to parents, if you have somebody in your home who, um, you know, at first it feels like buying into it, like buys into, okay, the brain has been changed. That does mean something different for the way I need to parent them. Let's be on the same page together about this. It, I mean, that learning curve is just so much steeper. I mean, it's, you know, having a partner in parenting makes things easier anyways. I think if you have two people in the home where one is not on board at all, they're completely entrenched in that behavioral mindset. Like this child is manipulative. They're doing it to me on purpose. They just want to make my life miserable versus, ah, there's something else going on here that I need to be curious about and figure out to parent them differently, that that is, um, it almost makes for an impossible situation for some of these families, right? And so that's a lot of the work that I do too, is one parent will come on board, they reach out to me, (laughs) they're kind of hooked, it resonates with them. And then they're like, come along, come along to their partner and getting them on the same page. And then when they can get on the same page, it's not every day, all the time. I don't know that that's even 
possible, right, in parenting partnerships. Um, but most of the time, if they can support each other in that work, then it's like, it's magic. I mean, it's just the the results in terms of lowering the chaos in the home, the um, the amount they see their kids kind of settle, the amount they see themselves, you know, settle um, is, is amazing. But yeah, it can take some time to get there for sure. Well, let me ask you this because I, I know you use, um, you use the phrase brain first parenting. And so, mm-hmm. you know, here's the, here's the question. I haven't figured this one out yet. So maybe you have the, the answer to all my questions here. <laughs> well, you know, you have a kid who has this neurological change and they're dealing mm-hmm. with that. And so, yeah, we, we realize that that's part of, part of who they are as a human, but at the same time, sometimes the, the behaviors that jump out are also choices. And so figuring out how to, how to see this as, I mean, because if you, you have teenage kids in your house, you know this. Sometimes teenagers are incredibly stupid and do things. It's like, what? You did what? Like a, a quote unquote neurotypical teenager is going to do some stupid stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I know because like I said, I'm the, I'm the, the, the picture of neurotypical right here. I did some stupid stuff as a teenager. I don't know how my parents did not kill me um, sometimes, but as I look at this and watch this and try and figure out, like, how do you determine what part of this is a, is a trauma response, a brain response to something that that's not their fault. And, and sometimes it is their choice. It's, it's just a choice to act out because, because they're teenagers or because they're, you know, whatever age they are, they're a kid and kids Mm -hmm. do stupid stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great question because especially having two teenagers in my home, um, I see that from both of them, of course. And, but even then, even then, so for example, for my son, who I said, you know, is what folks would consider neurotypical when he quote unquote acts out or does something that just not a smart choice, or it's not thoughtful or whatever it might be. There's always something behind that to be curious about. He's a good kid. He's a good person. And so if he's showing me these behaviors that say otherwise, there's room for me to be curious about what's behind that, right? Um, with our kids who have some sort of neurodiversity, it's more exaggerated. And, the, and, and what I mean there is, for example, we know that one of the skills that you and I, I'm going to make assumptions about you now, That's one a- thing that you and I can do <laughs> without even thinking about it is we can say A plus B equals this really terrible, awful C. So, oh my goodness, I'm not going to do A plus B. Like, why would I? It makes no sense. How many times have we said to our kids, teenagers who are neurodiverse, what were you thinking? How could you possibly think that was a good idea? It's such an awful outcome. It just happened last week. Like, didn't you learn your lesson then? Why would you ever think that you could do this again and it would turn out differently? It's not about them saying, I just want to be in trouble again. I just want to make my parents' life hell again. It's that they have a lagging skill because of their brain working differently where they cannot anticipate, they cannot forward think, they cannot pull up experiences from the past and apply them to the present to think like, oh, that's right. I did that before. I learned my lesson. I'm not going to do it again. And add lack of impulse control for many of them, even at teenage years on top of that, like no wonder (laughs) they're getting themselves into trouble more often, bigger problems, higher risk than our teenagers who are, you know, their frontal lobe is still developing. They're still at risk for those things, (laughs) Um, but not as high of risk because they have a brain that is developing typically or what we would consider typically 
Well, first off, we hope that frontal lobe is still developing. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but and and here's the the kicker in some of it is sometimes they do intentionally make some of those choices to cause some problems in owls. And I and I say that because you know, depending on the kid, whether it's a foster placement or an adoptive placement, um, we have had one particular uh, biological parent that we've we've kept some connections with who has suggested that if you act this way, then they'll just let you come stay with me. And I know for a fact that's that's actually been part of the conversation. I had a, a buddy of mine that I grew up with as well. And and my dad met him professionally as a police officer because his mom called the police department and said, come deal with this child before I abuse him. And mm-hmm. come to find out years later, well, I found out, you know, earlier than anybody else did because we were buddies. This was the stuff his biological father was telling him to do. So his mom would just give up and let him come stay with him. His dad was mm-hmm. not a healthy human by any any standards in any society um not not an awesome person and that's what he was telling just just act out do all this crazy stuff and your mom will let you come stay with me that you know and so sometimes that is part of this part of their their plan because they're teenagers and their brain is not developed enough to realize it's going to cause you problems and and so it's it's a real struggle to deal with that yeah well and i mean what even just that story it's like what is there to be curious about, right? Like what was his motivation and man, how heartbreaking that motivation is that he articulated, right? It's like his need for connection, his yearning for connection, him wanting just so badly to have a permanent place without this back and forth, whatever it might be. So, you know, he could be considered neurotypical, right? But he still has this motivation behind this behavior that is there for the parent to be curious about punishing him for doing the thing is obviously not going to be what gets at that at all. It doesn't even come close to hitting the mark. So yeah, it's really made me, I mean, thinking about just behaviors in this way and, you know, the bids for connection and needing for connection, all of that biological imperative we all have, have really made me um, a different parent, even with my son, who's very typical, (laughs) right? Because it applies to all of us. It applies to all human relationships and connection. It just looks, it's, it's just so much more pronounced in the intensity and frequency by which our kids who are neurodiverse need this types of, of lens shift. It's, it's absolutely essential for them to be successful in their environments. If they have somebody who's 100% behavioral lens all the time, they will continue to fail. Absolutely. And their self-esteem will suffer, so on and so forth. So just more, even more important or pertinent with them. You know, I've been reading through uh, some works from, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, who Karen Purvis is. Uh huh. Yep. Okay. So uh, I think it's, I don't remember, I think I'm reading the, the connected parent. My wife has the connected child book and we're just kind of <laughs> tag teaming back and forth on those learning out of that. And one of the things I see her say a lot is connection before correction. Yes. Mm-hmm. And yep. can you flesh that out a little bit? Because I'm going to tell you, yeah. I think I know what that means. And I think I stuck at it. (laughs) Well, it's, I mean, for all of us, right? It's again, how we've been conditioned. Like our child does something that misbehaves. We address it right there in the moment. That's the definition of a good parent for most people. Like I will not let my child get away with bad behavior. I'm going to address it right in the moment. So they know without a doubt that it's not okay. What that means to me from my perspective, and I say this to parents all the time, that connection before correction. And what I mean is that when we have a child who has neurobehavioral challenges, brains that work differently, 
one of the skills that they are lagging way behind in, it's an executive functioning skill, is the ability to um, emotionally regulate as we would expect them to, right? And so they've done something wrong. Maybe it's because of their lagging skills. Again, they can't forward think. They can't anticipate the outcome. They have no impulse control, whatever it might be. They can't take somebody else's perspective and settle into that and put themselves in someone else's shoes. All of those are lagging skills. But whatever the reason, when we say, hey, that was not okay. You need to sit down. You're not going anywhere until we talk about this. Then they have to emotionally regulate on top of listening to us, reflecting on what they did, all of these cognitive skills that they are already struggling with. So when they, when we do that, when we move straight to correction, they are going to be dysregulated. We all know what that looks like behaviorally for our kids. They are going to be, yeah, they're going to be out of their thinking brain. So they literally cannot access the skills they need to be reasonable, to sit down and have a conversation with you. So that's why I always say, if you can focus on connection first, your child is obviously not having a good day, right? For whatever reason, focus on connection, co-regulation, watch for them to settle. We hopefully all know what that means for our kids too, when they are in that settled place and then circle back and talk with them about what happened and why it wasn't okay, what amends need to be made. So it doesn't mean we excuse the behavior. We just say, oh, well, their brain works differently. It wasn't their fault. No conversation to be had. No, it doesn't mean that at all. We want to instill our values. We want to be able to help them connect the dots. What led to what? Why is brother or sister like refusing to talk to you now? <laughs> right? They're not over it. Why is that? Right? They need help with all of that. It, it's, it cannot happen in that moment of correction when they're dysregulated. It has to be connection first. So their thinking brain can come back online and you can circle back and then have a quote unquote reasonable conversation with them. So that process that I've just described can take days. When kids are so dysregulated so much of the time, especially like in foster care families, when a child has not been with you very long, so they have not had a co-regulated adult to help them settle. They spend most of their time out of their thinking brain. It can take days to address like this one small thing. That's where parents, I'm like, I know um, it's difficult to wait and feel like, oh, I'm not getting to it. I'm not addressing it. I should be addressing it sooner than this. But I promise you that this will help them then integrate that into their behavior, whatever values or lesson you want them to learn. And over time, they will be able to tolerate this conversation in sooner, faster intervals. It just takes time. Well, Did I that think, help explain it from my perspective? Yeah, yeah. I, th I think I have one example of a time that worked really well in my house. Um, turtle who people have probably I, there's some episodes where turtle's been on here with me talking and um turtles what eight now about to turn nine years old and sometime within the last six months or so he was having a day like you could just watch his body you knew he was he mm -hmm. something was going on his his little brain was firing a little too fast for him to be able to process and he he did something with with amanda and and, and she kind of hey what you know and kind of just snapped right back at him a little bit and she walked out of the room and I, I looked at him like oh man like I can see the electric coming out of his ears I'm like come here buddy come over here and I'm sitting here in my my office chair that has this awesome little lean back function and mm -hmm. 
God loves these things, and I love these things because they're comfortable. And I leaned back, and I had him sit on my lap, and I just just kind of pushed him up to where he was leaning against my chest for a minute. Mm-hmm. And it was probably I was sitting here editing some audio or doing something just mundane on the computer, and he he sat he sat on my lap, and he leaned up against me, and he was rigid, I mean stiff like a board. And mm-hmm. after about five minutes, maybe ten, of just doing the thing I'm doing, all of a sudden I felt his body soften. Mm-hmm. It kind of sank into me. Mm-hmm. And like he showed back up, like the human showed back up in the body that was sitting on me. And I looked yeah. at him and said, Hey bud, that wasn't very fun. Was it? And he said, no, you know, mom's whatever, whatever it was, he gave me his perspective of what he had just yes. experienced. And I was mm-hmm. like, mm, I, I, I see that, that that's real. And I start using, I, I don't know if you're familiar with, um, I'm looking for a name at the moment. Um, Chris Voss, he has a book, it's mm-hmm. aimed mostly at business professionals called Never Split the Difference, but he was a hostage negotiator. And if you have children, hostage negotiation skills are invaluable. You know, some of the things like labeling emotions when they show up. And I labeled a few of the emotions and just sat there and let them kind of land. And, and he started talking and I just, just let him talk and, and he talked through his thing. And I'll be hanged if he didn't stand up, walk out and say to Amanda, Mom, I'm sorry. I wasn't trying to be mean. I'm just, yeah. and then he, he kind of spilled his guts to her. And I'm like, holy crap, did you just see that? Like, yep. number one, this is hostage negotiation tactics, number one. <laughs> um, this guy was the head, the lead negotiator for the FBI's international kidnapping team. So these oh, wow. are the skill sets. Yeah, I'm using terrorist skill sets on my eight-year-old. And it worked <laughs> amazingly well. But by connecting with him first, we could have a conversation. And realistically, there wasn't a whole lot of correction even needed because he he liked walked out and had the correction piece already figured out. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. And some parents cannot imagine their child doing such a thing. And you and I both know that it's possible when given the right conditions. And that's not shaming or blaming parents where that's not happening yet. You don't know what you don't know. But leading with empathy, I mean, that's what I hear you talking about in that interaction. You led with empathy. You didn't come down and say, hey, stop talking to your mom like that, or you should know better, or whatever might have been, you know, our kind of visceral first reaction. It was, hey, come be close to me. Let me give you co-regulation. You said to him, like, uh, I could see, basically you said, I could see that you were having a really hard time. I'm so sorry that you were having such a hard time, rather than why are you always giving everybody a hard time? Why are you giving your mom a hard time again? Right? Such a different approach, but that leading with empathy. When I talk to parents about that, a parent um, where their child has like completely destroyed their room, for example, holes in the walls, furniture broken. And we talk about the first step in resolving that being leading with empathy. It's like, I have four heads. (laughs) (laughs) And I get that because the behavior is so wrong, right? It's so wrong. And so for me to say, can the first thing you do in kind of re-engaging after something like that is say, you know, I was so sorry to see you were having such a hard time, like such a hard time that your room ended up in the way that it did. It just broke my heart to see you struggling so much. I'm so sorry that that is was how you were feeling and like, leave it. And let that settle in, right? Some kids have a hard time even emotionally tolerating that, that kind of empathy coming towards them. That can send them into dysregulation. So you have to, you know, be observant, reflect, kind of watch 
like you said, kind of those physical changes in your child and see, but if you can do that, I promise you will get to, this is why that wasn't okay. How can we do it differently next time? How can I support you differently next time? So we don't end up in the place that we did. Um, but taking that first step of leading with empathy can be real stretch <laughs> for mm. parents who have been living in that chaos and aggression and violence um, for many years, some of them, right? So I get that. Especially when you're the dad who's staring at the holes in the wall that you've already repaired more than once, you know, yes. in old 1900 spilt house where it's plaster and lath and I've got to go get out the thing and make the plaster yes. and, and fix it again. And yes. do I sound a little frustrated with that? Because I still have holes that need to be repaired in my home. The upstairs yeah. of my house stays really hot because I can't keep everything patched up. I just don't have that much yeah. time in my day. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. No, totally get it. Totally get it. And that's the, I mean, that's the, I think this is why um, having people around you who are trying to parent from this lens is so important because it does feel so um, it's in such opposition to the behavioral lens in so many ways that you can easily be like, Oh no, especially as a dad, I should be doing this or that instead of this leading with empathy. I mean, you talk about your dad's group, um, in, with the dads that I have worked with, this is sometimes I'm of course now being very stereotypical, but it, it has been my experience that this leading with empathy and also the connection before correction is so much more difficult for many of them because they, especially as boys and as men have been conditioned to solve the problem immediately, use my power and force. Like I say, you do, um, they were not given the connection and the co-regulation growing up to have that pattern in their own <laughs> way of being, you know? So it's, it's intergenerational, honestly, that's why it's so complicated, but the rewards are so great, right? Which I'm guessing just hearing a little bit about your journey and kind of where you've been and where you are, um, you could speak to that even more so. Oh yeah. You know, in the dad's group, I know the guy, I know him personally, he, he, uh, he doesn't, doesn't live too far from me. Um, but, um, I know Larry pretty well. And on his, as part of his, his group, he has a patience course. And he said, you know, you would be amazed that the most downloaded piece of, of content that he has is a patience course designed for dads. Mm -hmm. And as we talk in this group and, and we see new guys come in all the time and mm -hmm. it's almost ubiquitous that men are not given patience as I, you know, I don't know if I'm going to blame it on God because I don't know if it's God that doesn't give it to us or more so that society has taught us that patience is weakness. And it, that's, it is. Yes. Well, I would say 100% society. <laughs> There's no question <laughs> in my mind. And the reason why is, you know, we talk about this. Well, of course, you're the folks who listen to your podcast and you as a foster parent know this about the ability to have quote unquote self-regulation when none of us are born with that, right? It develops at birth. Ideally, when you have an attentive parent who's taking care of your needs and soothing you as you need it, lots of kids who go through a foster, if not all of them did not get that. So no wonder they don't have quote unquote self-regulation, right? They get that as they're at older ages from the parents who are now caring for them, providing them with that co-regulation. So I say all of that, but men many men grew up without the amount of co-regulation that they truly needed. So for example, you, you, um, you know, you have a little boy, you have a little girl, um, the little girl skins, her knee falling down. She's instantly in tears. And the parents are saying, Oh, come here. 
let me see if you're okay, giving her lots of connection, lots of love, lots of co-regulation. The boy, same thing happens. And what is he told? Like, get up, you're okay. Shake it off, shake it off, right? Given no co-regulation, right? Is not given kind of that um, repetitive kind of soothing that, that kids at all ages require, right? And so what does that do for him as growing up? That's why I say to the men all the time that I work with, it is not your fault that this is so hard. This quote unquote patience is something that is developed with the co-regulation as through every stage of our life up until this point. And if you didn't get enough growing up, it's going to be harder for you. It doesn't mean that it's impossible. It just means that you need to be even more conscious of like what exactly is happening in these moments. So you can take that step back, get a handle on that visceral reaction that is going to come up at some point for all of us, right? And do something differently, move down a different path rather than the path that they're so conditioned to believe is what their only option, really. Many of them think that. You know, it's, you're talking about patience. And one of the things I've found in, in society, and you only have to open up Facebook for like 30 seconds, not even that long to figure this out, is that it seems like the national pastime is, has shifted from baseball to recreational anger. People are just mm-hmm. looking for something to be angry about. And, you know, my PhD thesis I'm going to work on here for a moment. Mind you, I don't have any any reason to have one of those because I'm not on that (laughs) educational track. But my thesis is that I think that most of us, especially as men, it's one of the few places we feel power is in our Mm -hmm. anger. Because I'm the big, scary, hairy, brown guy, right? And if, if I'm in a situation in public and somebody begins to do something where I feel any kind of threat or danger, Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to get big. I'm going to get loud. I'm going to look threatening really fast. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's how I can control the situation. It's the only place where I initially feel power. And mm-hmm. that's awesome when you're in the, in the grocery store and somebody comes in and starts swinging something around, screaming, yelling, whatever, bad thing. And you need to protect physical safety in this moment. But mm-hmm. when you're dealing with a, a five-year-old little boy, and he, he spikes off his little amygdala, goes crazy, and, and he's mm-hmm. in his fight or flight, and you respond with that same anger, that's yeah. not helpful in any way. Right. But we still do right. it. Right. Because you've been conditioned too, just as you said, like in your fight or flight, right? So he goes into his fight or flight. It's contagious. You're going to, whether you want to or not, you're going to go into fight or flight, maybe at a lesser degree than him, but it still happens to us. And what is your automatic piece? It's to not be vulnerable. You cannot be vulnerable in that moment. You have to fight or flight. And for men, the opposite of being vulnerable is getting bigger, getting louder, getting angry, right? There's, um, you know, a lot of the work that I do with parents inevitably leads to talking about grief and loss in the parenting experience, whether that's a foster care parent, adoptive parent, or biological parent, doesn't matter. Um, And when I am working with a couple and the woman is in tears and talking about this grief and loss and the dad is just angry, 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 angry. I'm always looking for that current of grief and loss underneath it because it's 99% of the time it's there, right? But they were not ever allowed to be sad and tearful and um, grief, experience grief. It was always, no, let's jump to the anger that because that vulnerability was too much. It wasn't accepted, right? There was never a space for them to do that. Um, So yeah, it's, I love this topic because I feel like so many um, dads don't understand that. And they, there's so much shame and blame on themselves about 
why they're responding, like why they fly off the handle, why, you know, all these things, like I should know better. I've been, you know, I've learned this a million times. Why can't I do it? Because it's freaking hard. (laughs) And this is why, this is why it's so hard. It is as hard as you think it is. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I watch, I watch, you know, other dads, I watch my own kids, I watch my family and I see these things coming up just consistently across the board. And one of, one of the things that, that I've always seen watching parents go through this stuff is that you, especially when you do it right, when you have that moment, um, a great example, little, little Frankie, my, my six-year-old seven, seven. Yeah. He's seven now. They change every year and I have a hard time keeping up with it. He's seven now. Um, the doctors have put the label of ADHD on him. And I was like, well, duh. I mean, this kid is 180 miles an hour. It's he, he's got some, some challenges ahead of him and we know this, you know, but one day he was, he was having a meltdown in the living room and uh, my oldest son was over here. He was 22, 23 at the time. And I called Frank, come here, buddy. He comes in and he's, he's in the mid meltdown moment. And I, I was in, in a good headspace. This is, I like to tell stories where I did it right here. Um, <laughs> and that moment I let the air out of my little office chair, got down low, like eye level with him. And I talked with him and calmed him down and did that whole slowing my voice and being, you know, the FM DJ voice, I think is what Chris Voss calls it in his book about, about dealing with terrorists. And, you know, I got him calmed down and brought into the back into the space where he was kind of cognizant of where he was we talked it through for about 30 seconds and he calmed down and we were good i reach up and knuckles dude you're awesome he runs off to the other room and my oldest son who was standing in the room watching this because he was here that day he looks at me he goes where the hell was this guy when i was that age I told him the truth. I said, you were busy building him. Um, you, you were, you, you got into the ground floor, dude. Sorry. But, but the thing is, is, you know, he could see that as something that was beneficial. He could see that yeah. as something that was working well. And so yeah. many people see it though. And they look at it and they go, well, you're just letting him get away with whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. And what do you say to, to parents when, mm-hmm. you know, it might be the other spouse, you know, a husband or a wife, it might mm-hmm. be grandma, grandpa, uncles, aunts, mm-hmm. or just that stranger in the grocery store who happens to see you working through mm-hmm. something and, and has something rude to say, because mm-hmm. to be honest, I've been that guy in the past because I was a young, dumb idiot and, and was not always wise enough to keep my mouth shut when I saw things. And, mm-hmm. and you see that and you're like, why, why would you let a kid get away with that? You're just making it worse. Yeah. So how yeah. do you, how do you approach that when, especially if your my own parents would, and my dad's gone now, but you know, my mom would not agree with the way that we raise our kids in large part because yeah. she sees that as letting them get away with it. You're just letting them do it. Yes. Then what do you expect them to do? They're going to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, a few things. One thing is um, that parents who are in that position to give yourself as much self-compassion as you can, those moments are hard when it's all eyes on us and you're feeling like the judgment just burning in the back of your head (laughs) from those (laughs) eyes on you. It's not easy. It's not easy. The other thing that I say to parents a lot, we talk about our limited amount of energy. All of us have a limit. And when we have parents who are kids who require so much more energy from us than typical children, we have to be very wise about where we spend it. We do not want to spend it on people who we don't know, who will never understand. Now, the people in your family 
that is, that's where it gets really, really tricky because they are in your life. They are important to you. I try to have a lot of compassion for them, knowing that there was a point where I didn't know any of this. And I saw my daughter's behaviors as willful and defiant. And so thinking, okay, of course, they're coming into this from this perspective and doing what I can, again, with my limited energy resources to helping them shift their lens, whether it's giving them things to read or talking with them in quiet moments, not in the moment that, you know, the, the challenging behavior is happening. But here's the thing is there are people, there are some people who cannot make the shift. They just can't do it. And that was so disappointing to me. Because I wanted to believe that everybody could kind of come over to this, like, oh, okay, yeah, they've been through all of this. Of course, they have these behavioral symptoms. Of course, they're struggling and having a hard time, not giving me a hard time. But there are some people who cannot make that shift. And then you have to make hard decisions about what are they going to be in your life? What are they going to be in your child's life? I believe that if my daughter is in an environment where somebody will not shift, they cannot shift, they will not shift. It's harmful to her. She can't be in that environment if they are the adult in charge because she will be the one in trouble all the time. Her self-esteem will suffer, right? It will be traumatizing for her. And so it's like, okay, this is inconvenient that she can't go to this camp, for example, that we were really counting on having her in, but we can't do it. And that's a privilege in and of itself to be able to make those decisions. Some of us are much more reliant on those environments and don't have the ability to do that, but where you can making those hard decisions. Um, I, so I write lots of blog posts and one of, I think actually the last one I did was a letter to family members. And the reason why I did that is because the parents that I was working with in the resilience room were saying, I can't, I don't feel like I can explain this to my family, this perspective, what I'm going through my experience. And so I was like, well, let me give it a shot and try to articulate like what families have said to me, they wish their family members knew. Um, so it's something easy that they can then send to their family members. Um, so it's things like that, that I think um, can help shift, but some people can't do it. Right. Um, and then that's, that's never, never easy. Um, but I think then that's where the hard decisions come. Well, I actually saw that particular blog post. I was, th I was going to mention that since you, you had talked about that, I was like, that's exactly mm. what I'm thinking. Cause, cause I read that one and I, I'm not going to lie. I sat there and went, yeah, you know, y'all need, need to read this thing. Because <laughs> there were so many points in there that, that you know, are exactly the things that, that the people in my life need to hear. You know, yeah. the vast majority of, of my, you know, parents, aunts, uncles, family members, you know, um, they're starting to dwindle because, you know, our family, our family DNA doesn't, doesn't lead towards long life typically. So they're starting to dwindle a bit, but the ones who are still around they're they're from that old school mentality and yeah. they don't understand that the, a lot of this stuff. And as I was reading that particular blog post, I thought this is frigging gold. This is, this is exactly what my mom needed to hear five years ago. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I give all the credit to the folks I work with because I said to them, we have a private Facebook group for our resilience room group. And um, I just made a post in there and just said, okay, I'm ready to write this. <laughs> what would, what do you want your family to know? And I probably had 30 different comments on there. And so tried to summarize those as much as I could into one blog post. Um, but yeah, those ideas came from them. Um, so I'm glad that it resonated with you. Oh yeah. Yeah. I actually, um, one of the calls that, that I do, that I deal with, I mentioned that, uh, that I talked to a lot of dads in the, in the dad group I'm in uh, 
Uh, one of them has to do with kids who have, you know, some sort of neurological struggle in their life. And that was something that right after I read that, I'm like, all right, guys, like, let's talk about some of these pieces. Like, is this something you struggle with? And to a man, every one of them was like, oh, yeah, for sure. And, and that was a piece of content that most of us, I don't know that we even recognize that right off the bat sometimes. It's just like, it's the world against you. You know, you're the parent who's trying to be the good parent and mm-hmm. the whole world is like, you're a horrible parent. I don't care how hard you're trying. I don't care. I don't know what your life is like. I just know you're a horrible parent and mm-hmm. man, that's not helpful. No, no, it's not helpful. And it's, it, it doesn't have to be that way. That's, I mean, that was, um, that's why I created like my community, the resilience room. It's because parents were saying to me when I was meeting with them one-on-one, you're the only person in my life who really understands what I go through day to day. Like nobody would believe me if I told them how hard it is sometimes. And I was like, oh yeah, there's lots of other people like you. (laughs) You I was like, I need to bring these people together and not just bringing together people with the same lived experience because there's lots of forms for that. What I really wanted was a place to bring parents together who have this shared lived experience and also are working incredibly hard to parent their child from this lens of it's a skill thing, not a will thing. It's about their brain working differently, not about them just doing you know bad behaviors on purpose to me all the time. That is really difficult to find. Absolutely. And in full disclosure, I just joined that the resilience room because I was like, yeah, this is the stuff that I think we need, we need some connection around because in our life, we, we're the same thing. You know, we, we don't have a lot of that sort of support in our immediate, um, you know, area with the people in our family, with people mm-hmm. around us. There's not a lot of people who will see it that way. And it's such a yeah. challenge to, to walk those roads and not have somebody who understands, you know, when, when you are having what what a bad day to me looks like, you know, I've seen right. people who, who have a bad day because all oh, my kids spilled, spilled cereal on the floor and we had to clean up all the, get all the cereal out of the floor and get the milk out. And it was, it was all this work. And it was, and I'm like, nobody like tried to stab anybody in my house. I'm calling that a win, you <laughs> a know, different, a different measuring stick. Yes. Yes. Where some days, uh, some days the winds are measured in millimeters in our home, not, not in yardsticks. <laughs> I get that. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's been so difficult for us to, to find people who, who see life that way. So I think mm-hmm. that's super important for people to understand that there is a community out there, that this is the way that they see things. This is the way that they believe. And we are not like all just crazy because because we don't see the world the same way that everyone else does. And for having a community like that, I just want to say I'm super excited to dive into that uh, as much as I can. Cause like, like life is hard. You know, we have, we have four kids in our house with significant mental diagnosis right at the moment. And, um, mm-hmm. well, you know, full-time kids. And then we, we have baby girl with us. Who's probably going to have some of her own you know struggles because she was born addicted yeah. as well. And so that's, that's the challenges that we deal with every day. And yeah. man, it's hard to find a community of people who, who have lived that and are willing to work through it and not just point fingers and use that all encompassing tool that solves everything like shame. You're a bad parent. Yes. That's right. That's right. hundred percent. Yeah. The, the shame thing I think is the, one of the most damaging things that, that we can experience and it seems to be everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. 
there is no shortage. <laughs> I, I'm I'm glad that that I'm not the only one that believes that. But you know, Eileen, I know you said you had a a podcast series out there that people can listen to 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 kind of get to know who you are and what you talk about. And mm-hmm. you can't just go to the podcast players and type it in, right? Right. Yeah. You need to go to a specific link. It's go.eileendivine.com forward slash listen now. And it's a six part episode, six episodes, six part series <laughs> that is um, focused on the brain first parenting model that I teach parents looking at the model itself and then the parent experience, everything that we've been talking about today. So if folks are curious to learn more, and just kind of get a sense of what that is that I teach parents. That's where that's the best way to dive into it. Okay. And if you're like me and you have a struggle with spelling names properly or the way that they, that they <laughs> are actually written, um, cause I'm really good at messing up names. Just look down in the show notes underneath this in your, uh, in whatever podcast app you use, and there will be a link in it to that specific uh, website so that people can go and find it and listen into what you do, because I want to make certain that the, the link is available to, to go have some, some people that this resonates with and go, yeah, I need that. Um, be able to get to it really quick and easy. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Eileen. Um, you know, so many of us are struggling and so few of us have found resources to work, um, towards, towards the best possible solution, you know, not even towards fixing it, right? That's, that's my guy mentality. I'm Mr. Fix it, mm-hmm. right? There's a problem. So I'm going to go find a, a stick and some duct tape and we're going to make this work. We're going to fix the problem. And there's a lot of these things we can't fix, you know, some, so sometimes we're not working towards a, a perfect solution. We're just looking for the next best thing that'll help this, this work well, as, as well as it can, especially for kids who have neurobiological differences. Yeah, well, I appreciate you having me and I appreciate the work you do too in supporting parents. Um, I firmly believe that there is much more hope for parents and kids like ours than we are ever led to believe that the first answers we will get will always lead us to hopelessness and helplessness (laughs) because so many of them are not rooted in this neurobehavioral, what neuroscience research teaches us, so on and so forth. So just sending that out to the folks listening as well. I'm guessing that many of them are in pretty desperate and dark places um, and that there is much more hope for you than you have been led to believe thus far. And as I understand it, I believe the resilience room is going to close the doors for a little while again. Um, By the time this episode is aired, the the doors will have been closed. Um, So if you go to your website, EileenDevine.com, again, there'll be a link down in the, in the, the show notes for you. Um, you usually have a spot where you can sign up to be notified when it's open, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. There's always a wait list. I always open every four to six months or so. Um, and, um, I also do trainings with parents too. So some people, um, maybe they're like, ah, I don't know if I need the community, but I would like to learn more about this model and way of parenting my child. And so there's opportunities to do that with me as well. And it's all on my website. Okay, good deal. A little behind the scenes for everybody here. Like we don't record this and then hit publish tomorrow because 
life does not work that way for me. We <laughs> tend to do more batch recording. So by the time you guys actually hear this, there's a good possibility it will only be a couple months until the, the Brazilians room may be opening the doors again. So, you know, jump on that website and sign up if you're interested at all. Because, you know, I, I jumped in and we did the, uh, a call the other night, right? You had the, the call, like mm -hmm. just letting people know what it's like and, and, and yep. allowing people to kind of understand it. So there's no obligation to put in an email address. You know, you, you just come and see what it's about and then you can make some decisions from there, right? That's exactly right. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. Cause you know, it's, if, if you have any interest at all, I'm just going to say, go to, go to the website, sign up for that. And you may get some of those blog posts sent to your inbox that are that stinking valuable that, mm -hmm. that make you go, Oh, this gal's kind of smart. I wish I would have known this stuff when I started. <laughs> well, I've learned from many, many, many people and I just help kind of synthesize it for parents. So appreciate you saying that. Well, Eileen, I'm only mad at you for one thing, and that's that you weren't there 15 years ago when we started and needed to start <laughs> <doing> this stuff. <laughs> Sorry about that. I really apologize. <laughs> you go, go buy you a DeLorean and see if you can go back in time. And <laughs> right. <laughs> life would have been so much easier if I knew some of this stuff when I started, but I think God puts us in the place we need to be in the moment we need to be. And, and that's why we're here talking about this today, because I'm certain more than one somebody needs to hear this today. Yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly with you with that. Well, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you. Take care. Okay, Foster Care Nation. Thank you for listening to Eileen's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have an account over at Buy Me A Coffee. It's like a virtual tip jar where you can help us fund our mission for as little or as much as you want. It's at buymeacoffee.com slash fostercare. The links to everything are in the show notes in your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys so cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Unparalleled Studios. Studios.